Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Hello, and welcome to Crime and Spirits, your new favorite true crime and cocktail podcast. I'm your host, Bree. And I'm your other host, Suze. We're best friends who are obsessed with true crime, and we love a good-themed cocktail. So, we took our two favorite things and turned them into a podcast. I'm the resident bartender here at Crime and Spirits, so every time we get together, I mix up a drink that ties into the episode in some way, shape, or form, and then I teach you how to make one for yourself. That way, you can sip right along with us. We like to keep things conversational around here, so expect some tangents on occasion, as well as some cursing here and there. Think of us as a cross between Dateline and Girls' Night. So, come hang out with us every week while we learn a little something new together. We'd love to chat with you about whatever, really, but mostly true crime. You better buckle up, Buttercup. And sip tight. Let's get on with the show. Woo! Well, hey there, friends. Welcome to the very first episode of the new year. Woohoo, we're back. Just in case this is your first time joining us and you need a reminder, my name is Bree. And I'm Seuss. Thank you guys so much for coming to hang out. God, it feels so fucking good to be back in action. The break has been really necessary, but man, I've missed this. I really feel like we've accomplished a lot, though. So it, when you say necessary, that might be an understatement. That is true. That is absolutely <laughs> true. And speaking of, one thing that we definitely want to tell you guys right out the gate is we kind of decided that we want to not necessarily restructure the podcast per se, but we've had many conversations in the last couple of weeks about what we're doing, basically. Like, what are we doing with ourselves? And how to proceed, pretty much. (laughs) Because we knew that we had to change the way that we approached the podcast at the very least. So basically, we realized that some of our most favorite episodes that we've created thus far are the deep dives. Uh The ones where we really took time to get to know a subject and and really kind of like pick it apart. And really, yeah, really get into it. Mm -hmm. So we decided that we're going to lean into that a little bit more this year. So you guys can expect another serial killer summer, Mm -hmm. maybe some deep dives into like, you know, what's a serial killer? What's an MLM? We're going to try and add in some more conspiracy theories, some better known topics, pretty much everything. We want to try to break up the murder a little bit as well. You know, we were trying to figure out just who we were, what our vibe was. And we kind of got comfortable, I think, with the murder and man, for lack of a better word. And we really want to go a different route. It was always the intention for the podcast to not just be murder all the time. Right. So, you know, heads up. If you guys have any topics, like we've said, please let us know if there's anything specific. We do have a listener request that's on the docket. So excited. We'll get to that when the time comes. Shout out will be coming down the line. Yes. But yeah, I'm really excited. Me too. For what we're going to bring into everything. And so we decided to just start things out with a deep dive. With a (laughs) deep, deep. (laughs) A deep, deep dive. So let's just get to it. Today, we are going to be beginning our exploration into the captivating and notorious narrative of Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow. Yep, that that Bonnie and Clyde, that would be the ones. They are a criminal pair whose escapades during the Great Depression captivated the American public. Their tale is one of crime and passion. Professing love at first sight, their connection was instantaneous. 
And from the moment of their meeting, they found themselves deeply enamored with one another. And their relationship not only blossomed into a romance right away, like literally right away, but it also swiftly evolved into a criminal partnership, which is a dynamic we don't see very often. I I feel like this is one that really resonates with everybody because it's so passionate Mm -hmm. and it was so quick. It was. And then it became so violent. Yes. And then and then since we as Americans, like we like to do, have completely romanticized the fuck out of it. (laughs) I've never actually watched the movie, but they did make a movie in 1967, Mm -hmm. I think, about Bonnie and Clyde. And it's much more glamorous than the reality. Oh. By like very far. Yes. (laughs) So the story today is heavy on the gun violence, which means that will unfortunately be a consistent theme throughout all of our discussions today. The tale of Bonnie and Clyde often is romanticized, like we said, and their behavior in this violence sort of gets minimized. Mm -hmm. Make no mistake, however, these two were ruthless and incredibly violent when it came to their criminal activities. Despite being responsible for the loss of many innocent lives, their story is an interesting one, especially when you consider the time frame that we're working with here. However, if you're not digging this one, no worries. We always get it. We know that the topics covered here are incredibly sensitive in nature and not for every listener. You should always use discretion when choosing what podcasts to listen to, especially one like ours. Not only are the topics discussed on this show geared towards adults like, whoa, but we have an entire segment focused just on alcohol. We urge you to consume responsibly. And before we get started, we do want to make a quick note because there are a lot more of you out there now. Hi, guys. Mm-hmm. Hi. You know, Susan and I always do our very best to tell these stories with respect and compassion. And we just want to make it explicitly clear that while we may joke around throughout our conversations, that will never be done at the expense of a victim or their loved ones. We go into the creation of crime and spirits with nothing but the best of intentions. Our goal here is to learn more about the darker sides of human behavior, in addition to how and or why our justice system works the way it does. And, you know, we want to teach you a little bit about how you can make delicious cocktails at home with ingredients that are easily accessible. Well, mostly at least. (laughs) Mostly. Every now and then I see an ingredient or read a recipe and I'm like, I must do that. Done deal. So if it's a treat yourself or a splurge kind of thing, I usually make a note of that. Yes. But for the most part, we just want to try new things out. And this year we're going to get on it. We're going to be better about it. But (laughs) We'll save that for another day. Here at the podcast, you can count on us to be your thrifty bartenders. And with all that being said, let's get into our cocktail. I can't wait because Suze was talking all sorts of shit while she was making this one because she's like, (laughs) I don't even know what's going on right now. (laughs) So I Googled Bonnie and Clyde cocktails because I usually Google like if I can find something out there that relates to it that I don't have to completely create from scratch. I am here or even for it. if there's like a historical tie mm-hmm. that other people made between the things is yes. always an interesting thing to explore. It just so happens the reign of Bonnie and Clyde lasted from 1932 to 1934. Prohibition ended in 1933. So there's a little bit of overlap happening there. Mm hmm. I went down a very interesting rabbit hole with this one (laughs) to drinks I had never heard of and drinks people just made up and called the Bonnie and Clyde. (laughs) In the midst of all that nonsense, I came upon our drink of the day today, the Scofflaw. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? (laughs) I read it like Scofflaw, Scofflaw, because that's how it's spelled. Turns out 
Oh. It's a totally made up noun that was coined during the Prohibition era when discussing a person who drank illegally or otherwise ignored anti-drinking laws. They scoffed at the law. <laughs> you know, leave it to some prohibition shenanigans I know. for something like that. I'm here for it. So it turns out this word was actually the winning entry in a nationwide competition in 1923 to create a new catchy term, I guess, oh. for a lawless drinker. <laughs> yes. The competition was put on by a name a man named Delsever King, Ooh. who is a banker and a very enthusiastic supporter of prohibition. He wanted to come up with a term to describe the lawless drinker so as to, and I quote directly from Mr. King, to stab awake the conscience. <laughs> oh, no. I, I don't know how, how many consciences were stabbed by this word. <laughs> Hopefully it was minimal. <laughs> but it was a competition. There was a prize involved. What would that be? It was $200 in gold. Ooh. So I couldn't find the conversion in gold, but $200 in 1923 would be worth around $3,600 today. As you know, gold comes and it goes, but mm. it mostly keeps some value because it's yeah. gold. That's you know? not too shabby. So the winner was chosen January 15th, 1924. It turns out two different folks submitted scoff law. Not hilarious. Not one, but two. Was it the same drink? It, so it's just a word. So they just... It, yep. There like was not supposed to be a drink. Mm -hmm. There wasn't supposed oh, to be a drink associated with it. I see, I see. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. That's <laughs> kind of a great minds, I guess. Right? <laughs> so uh, Henry, Dale, or, or Henry Irving Dale and Kate L. Butler came up with this. They split the $200 in gold evenly. Out of the 25,000 entries Mr. King received, Dang. scofflaw was deemed to be the best and most fitting word. Huh. It was also frequently used during Prohibition and experienced sort of a revival in the 1950s. It was then used to describe anyone who displayed a disdain for laws that were difficult to enforce. Interesting. Yes. I did not know this was a thing. I've never heard of this cocktail before. I Googled it and I was like, scofflaw. I was like, come on now, that's <laughs> pretend. And then I kept clicking. It's got a Wikipedia page. Several other people have made it. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It's the got a whole blurb you know. on liquor.com. And oh, wow. According to them, if you want to have a true, honest-to-goodness, speak-easy drink, you should be having champagne or a ginger ale highball, which is just whiskey and ginger ale. Hmm. Apparently, fabulous cocktails were not the norm during Prohibition. When you were drinking illegally, and I'm quoting from liquor.com here, you just want to get down to drinking. End quote. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> You're not Which wrong. I can appreciate. Some of the drinks sounded gross. This one sounded questionable at best. Apparently, the scofflaw wasn't even invented in the good old US of A. A bartender named Jack created this drink at Harry's New York Bar which was located in Paris, France. <laughs> so the history is interesting. The word is weird. I am totally here for it. The original recipe for the scofflaw called for one-third rye whiskey, one-third French vermouth, one-sixth lemon juice, and one-sixth grenadine. We're going to change it up a bit. This is the recipe directly from liquor.com. Sounds interesting. I think it tastes pretty good. You guys can be the judge. <laughs> for starters, you'll need rye whiskey. We are using our Sazerac rye whiskey, which we purchased for the Sazerac that we made a while back. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That one was good. You'll also need a dry vermouth. We are using the old standby here, Martini and Rossi. It's the green bottle. It's in every bar in America. I swear, wrong. even if they don't touch it, it's still sitting it's still there, there collecting dust. It's just, I think, for aesthetic purposes, if nothing Basically. else. Basically. 
Um, you'll also need lemon juice. Fresh squeezed is best, but use whatever you've got. It's January when we're recording this. There's mm-hmm. a foot of snow outside. If yeah. you've got a bottle of lemon juice in your fridge, by all means, please use that. <laughs> you'll also need grenadine. We do have the alcoholic type, but you can use the NA type if that's what you've got. You'll also need an orange bitters. We are using our Wiggle brand, which it's technically pomander orange, but it gives it that extra herbally note, which will be good here. And finally, if you want to be fancy and garnish it, you'll need a lemon twist. To start with, to make the drink, we're going to mix it up in our shaker and pour it into a coupe glass. We just put our glassware in the freezer while we work so that the glass is actually nice and frosty when we're ready for it. Next up, grab your trusty shaker, fill it with ice. To that shaker, add two ounces of your rye whiskey, one ounce of dry vermouth, one quarter ounce of lemon juice, a few dashes of grenadine is what it said. I wound up doing about a quarter an ounce. It made it look prettier. It's a pretty like reddish pinkish color. It also helps with the taste. Mm. (laughs) And then you want to put in a dash or two of the orange bitters, shake it up all till it's nice and frosty cold, and then just strain it right into your prepared glassware, garnish it with a lemon twist, and that is it. And that is an interesting mix of flavors. But not in a bad way. It's not bad. I took a few sips and I was like, okay, this is good, actually. Yeah. Who would have thought? Well, you know, I mean, if you guys are new and you haven't checked out our old Prohibition episode yet, you should definitely do it because we kind of dug into some of the history of the cocktails back then. This is 100% a Prohibition cocktail. It's the vibe. Yep. (laughs) Like 1000%. It's pretty, but also you could chug it if the cops were knocking on the door. You know what I mean? Like it that is kind smooth. of vibe. I will say that. Like it's definitely boozy. So if you're not into super boozy cocktails, maybe add some like club, club soda, soda or Sprite or something. Our go-to is club soda. Our, it really is. When basic, in doubt. <laughs> basic bitches. I don't think I will ever change. There's some drinks that when I read the recipe, I'm like, oh, that, that sounds really good. And there's other ones like this one where I'm like, I do not know how, where this is going to take us. <laughs> when we were setting up to record the reel, because if you guys don't know, we always record that part first so we can have the drinks while we're doing this part. And I was like, okay, what do we got today? And she's like, this nonsensical mix of things. <laughs> she was just looking at the bottles like, uh, oh. Oh, okay. I mean, you really haven't let me down yet, so. It turned out pretty good. I'm yeah. just saying. Thank you, Interweb. Mm-hmm. I think it definitely is a good idea to up the, the grenadine. grenadine ever so slightly. It's a few dashes, but I was like, let's just have a little more. I think that if it had a little less, it would not be... The sweetness wouldn't be enough to cut the booziness of it. I think it would be blowing your socks off right now is what I think. (laughs) Honestly. (laughs) All right, friends. While you wrap up mixing, brewing, pouring, whatever it is you're doing while you're sipping along, we're going to just share a quick word from some of our friends over at the Podmouth Network. We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. I'm Declan, the son. And I'm Jane, the mom. This is the podcast where we talk about brutal crimes like serial killers and the random one-off murder. We will tell you about bizarre occurrences like alien abductions and monsters in the dark. And we just might get you drunk with cocktails themed around one of our stories. At the very end of every show, we like to lighten things up and cleanse the palate from the tragic and terrifying stories. So we end our time with a chaser. You might get to hear crazy stories about our pets or just silly movie recommendations. Give us a listen. We are the Brutal, Bizarre, and Boozy Podcast. Who 
is ready to learn some shit Ooh, me. about Bonnie and Clyde. Me, me. So we're going to dig right into everything and just blow your mind. Let's do it. Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow were a notorious criminal couple that committed a litany of crimes across several different states. Their criminal spree lasted from 1932 to 1934, like Sue's mentioned earlier. The couple, along with other gang members, were known for their daring escapes and the use of violence, which often resulted in the deaths of both law enforcement officials and civilians. Bonnie and Clyde's criminal activities were widely covered by the media, almost creating a mythic image of the outlaw couple. They became folk heroes to some, seen as rebels against the hardships of the time. The Great Depression, which most of us know was a devastating economic downturn that gripped the United States from the late 1920s to the early 1940s, marked a period of unprecedented hardship and challenges for American society. I think that for us to understand the trajectory of Bonnie and Clyde, both the actual people as well as the narrative that followed afterwards, we really need to gain some understanding of what everyday life looked like for the average American. So today, what we're going to do is just set the scene for you guys. We're going to dig into the background of who these people were and what were their lives like. Then next week, we'll discuss what transpired during those two years the gangs were active. We'll discuss the details of the crime and how they managed to escape each time because that in of itself is almost cartoonish I if it wasn't so violent. Right. When I was doing the research, I was like, oh my God, they got away again? How many, <laughs> how many times did this happen? Like, well, and you know, it's so funny. I was telling somebody at work, I, you know, I think I know about a topic until we dig into shit. And I'm like, did I even know anything about Bonnie and Clyde? And then I'm <laughs> like, nope, apparently I did not learn any part of this. Right. Well, and then our third and final episode will actually cover the last run, if you will, of Bonnie and Clyde, as well as the aftermath that followed, because there's a lot to that as well. So much. Dear Lord. <laughs> Honestly, this story could have been like eight parts, truly. It impacted, it impacted America in such a way. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the Great Depression was ongoing at the time. Yes. Kicking everybody's ass, pretty much. Mm -hmm. So a little bit about the Great Depression, kind of in a nutshell here. Most people already know that it was triggered by the stock market crash of 1929. The repercussions of this crisis were felt across all facets of American life, reshaping the nation's social, economic and cultural landscape. The hallmark of the era was widespread unemployment and poverty. You'll remember there's pictures of people, literally men standing in line mm -hmm. waiting just to even have a shot at a job. Yeah, no guarantee whatsoever. Not at and all. You'd spend days and days and days yep. doing that. Yep. As the unemployment rate soared to unprecedented levels, family faced the harsh reality of joblessness, financial insecurity, the loss of savings due to bank failures and a whole bunch of other horrible, awful things. The scarcity of jobs and the lack of social safety nets left many people struggling to meet basic needs, leading to a surge in homelessness and the emergence of Hoovervilles, which we learned about were basically like shanties yeah. all grouped together. The social fabric of society underwent significant changes as well. Families grappled with strained relationships and communities experienced the emotional toll of having to deal with nothing but uncertainty and fear for an extended period of time. For years. Can literal you, years. I can't handle that for more than like a few days. When the COVID lockdown happened, that mm -hmm. was, I was off of work for two months and it was like terrifying. If the energy at work is at all off, I'm like, I can't even deal with you guys. Like <laughs> right. I have to go. <laughs> like, 
So all that to say, I can only imagine what it was like for people. And interestingly enough, like most culture, the art and entertainment that was produced during this time was a direct reflection of the struggle society was dealing with. Literature, music, and visual arts beautifully captured the hardships and provided a means of catharsis for many. People were clinging on to anything they could to give them any kind of joy. You would need a spark of joy if times were that bad. You know what I mean? Literally anything, which keep in mind, because I feel like that plays a huge role in all the things we're going to discuss over the next few weeks. Also, I did want to just note that this was the time that uh, swing music started to really get popular and radio programs served as outlets for escapism and communal solidarity. Which I get. I get it. Especially as a podcaster, totally understand the appeal. (laughs) (laughs) The environmental catastrophe known as the Dust Bowl compounded these challenges faced by Americans during this time. Severe drought and poor farming practices led to massive dust storms, which caused agricultural devastation in the Midwest. The ensuing migration of farming families to other regions in search of work contributed to demographic shifts and strained resources in many different areas. And yes, the country did, in fact, pull themselves out of this hole eventually. And mostly. Let's not get too crazy. Right. (laughs) By means of the New Deal and the rise of labor movements across the land. That part isn't really important for what we're discussing today. The point of us going over this was just to give you some kind of context for what life was like for people during this time. And now that we've got all that in our brains, we're going to dig into some background on Bonnie and Clyde themselves. So Bonnie was born in 1910 in Rowena, Texas, to parents Charles and Emma. Charles was a bricklayer who unfortunately passed when Bonnie was just four years old. After this occurred, Emma packed up Bonnie and her two siblings and moved back to her parents' home. The Krauss residence was located in Cement City, an industrial suburb in West Dallas. So Emma was able to land a job quickly, and she worked as a seamstress, but the family still struggled financially. As we mentioned, it was not a great time for anyone. Growing up, Bonnie was a fairly good student. She was artistically inclined. She liked to sing, dance, and write poetry in her free time. When she was a sophomore in high school, Bonnie met fellow teenager Roy Thornton, and this was kind of the first moment that her life kind of took on a new trajectory, because the two fell in love, and they were married less than a year after meeting. They were married on September 25th, 1926, six days before Bonnie turned 16. I feel like back then that was common practice, but... Ew. I know. I literally had All to sit the there ews. and be like, Brie, remember that you're talking about the early 1930s? I know. The I 1920s at this point, yeah, but like, goodness right. gracious. I Ooh. still don't like it, but we're just, we're going to just move on. <laughs> so here's why I mentioned the whole thing about her trajectory. Because the thing about Roy, he was quickly establishing himself as a career criminal. He'd be gone for weeks at a time, just committing nefarious acts out and about, and then would frequently get caught doing said nefarious act because he, he wasn't good at it. He was not <laughs> a good criminal. Nope, nope, nope. And I feel like back then you had to be really bad at being a criminal <laughs> to well, get caught constantly. I mean, truly, you think states don't talk to each other now, but back right. then, like, how would they even? You had to drive to Arkansas or Ohio or wherever. Mm-hmm. And actually physically talk to people like it just didn't get done. Right. And then you add the fact that we have the great fucking depression happening at the same time. Like, nobody's got any money to do anything. None, none, none of the things were happening. But yet he was still managing to get caught and thrown in jail every so often. And as you can imagine, this kind of resulted in the marriage not really being a happy one. 
Eventually, Bonnie got fed the fuck up, and their marriage did become to completely crumble. Bonnie actually wrote about it in her journal, saying, quote, Dear Diary, before opening this year's diary, I wish to tell you that I have a roaming husband with a roaming mind. We are separated again for the third and last time. The first time, August 9th to 19th, 1927, and the second time, October 1st to 19th, 1927, and the third time, December 5th, 1927. I love him very much and miss him terribly, but I intend to do my duty. I am not going to take him back. I am running around with Rosa, Mary, Judy, and she is somewhat a consolation to me. We have resolved this New Year's to take no men or nothing seriously. Put that on a motherfucking t-shirt. Honestly, though. (laughs) Let all men go to hell, exclamation point. But we are not going to sit back and let the world sweep us by. Very poetic, even in her diary. Well, and that last line, too, is so ominous, knowing what we know now. Yes. Because she surely did not she let did the world not. <laughs> sweep her by. <laughs> uh, so it turns out Bonnie did stay true to her word. She did not reconcile with Roy. The last time she actually saw him was in January of 1929. And by that point, he had gone a year, which was the longest he had stayed away. Bonnie went to live with her mother after she left Roy. During the year he was gone, she had begun working as a waitress in Dallas. She frequently wrote of her loneliness as well as her impatience with life in Dallas, Texas, which I mean, girl, same. I also was a server. I get it. (laughs) Still, still. Honestly, right. So when Roy came back in early 1929, Bonnie was still single. However, her love for Roy has, had been gone and dead and not a thing anymore. She did not entertain any chance of them getting back together. Despite this, the couple never legally divorced. In fact, a few months after their final meeting, Roy was convicted and imprisoned for robbery. Yet again. Uh, again. Bonnie had told her mother at this point that she thought it would, quote unquote, look sort of dirty to file for a divorce post a conviction like that. So she just never did. And not so fun fact. This stayed true until Bonnie's death. She still wore her ring that she got married to Roy with, despite meeting and falling for Clyde, which I found a really interesting nugget of information considering Bonnie and Clyde's relationship. Right. I don't think I ever knew that, so I was very surprised, or I completely forgot, and I was like, what? Well, and I'm sure, though, filing for divorce, you probably had to pay to file the paperwork. Nobody had any money back then, so it was kind of like a let it ride type of thing. Mm -hmm. Like, why fuss about it? Well, and I can't speak to this for sure, but I can only imagine that there's pressure. I mean, there's pressure now for people to stay by their partners when they do things like that. They don't always deserve that support, but there is that pressure sometimes. So I wonder if that played a role. Well, again, we are talking about a world away from Mm -hmm. now. You know what I mean? So, And the young woman at that, I just I just can't help but wonder if she was like, I don't want to like risk go through all of that. Right. I can't say I blame her. The pain in the ass now. (laughs) Seriously. So speaking of Clyde, let's get to know him a little bit. He was born in 1909 to a poor farming family in Ellis County, Texas, which is southeast of Dallas. His parents, Henry and Kumi. That's how Microsoft read it to me because I had them do it like 16 times. to it multiple times. (laughs) So we'll go with that. Everything was, it's spelled C-U-M-I-E. So you can see where our confusion comes from. And Susan and I, no matter how many times we practice, when the time comes when we're live like this. Have, we literally <laughs> just have panic. Yep. <laughs> so much panic <laughs> flies through my body. It's unbelievable. At any rate, the Barrow family had seven children. Clyde was baby number five. In the early 1920s, the Barrow family moved to Dallas proper. 
This was part of a wider migration pattern happening at the time. Lots of folks were moving from rural areas to more populated cities, I think hoping for a break, which yeah. did not come. And grass is greener <laughs> on the other side kind of thing, I Until think. you get there, yep. Yeah. So many people, including the Barrows, settled in the urban slum of West Dallas, also known as the Devil's Back Porch. That upset me for them. Right. For the first few months of their time there, the family actually lived under their wagon until they could secure some kind of housing. Mm -hmm. According to author Jeff Gwynn, quote, the family settled in an area called the Bog. You could have thousands of people all along here. The Barrows, all these poor people pitching a tent, the Barrows don't even have a tent. They've got a wagon and at night they would sleep under the wagon, end quote. You know, reading something like that makes me want to take a second to be incredibly grateful Yes, for my home and all the things that I have in it. Well, and especially back then during the Depression, there was mm. a lot of crime because people were desperate yeah. and desperate people do desperate things, Absolutely. which are not always wonderful. So yeah. to have seven children living under a wagon, like I just can't even imagine what that would be like. The, the stress those parents had to have been under. Like, yeah. good God. So Henry eventually began running a filling station out of the front room of their homemade house on a lot in the city, which greatly contributed to their financial situation. Things were still a struggle, but it did lessen dramatically. As a teenager, Clyde attempted to enlist in the U.S. Navy. While growing up, Clyde was able to look across the Trinity River to downtown Dallas, and he often spent time looking at the city just yearning for a life that seemed out of reach. Enlisting would have given him a solid chance at getting that. Or at least getting closer to it than he was. Getting out of the situation he was in, I think, was the right. only concern really that, at that I, point. I do actually believe that's still a reason a lot of people join the military. I agree. <laughs> I mean, I, I know a lot there of people There are people who, who have a patriotic duty for mm -hmm. sure and feel it deep in their soul. But there are a lot of people that are just trying to better their lives. Exactly. And I can't fault anybody for that. Absolutely not. The thing about Bonnie and Clyde, which we're going to come to see, is that it really seems like they were... It's, it could go either way. Were they a victim of their time? Would it have been different if they would have been born to different li like legacies? Or if, if they would have gotten a break, if Roy wouldn't have been a piece of shit, if this next thing wouldn't happen, yeah. like perhaps life would have been different. Yeah. So I think it's really an interesting mindset to go into going into the rest of our deep dive here. So unfortunately for Clyde, he was rejected for medical reasons. He was actually still experiencing some lingering effects from when he had a serious illness as a child. They think it was possibly malaria or yellow fever, which are no fucking joke it's now, especially then. Back then, unless you were like dying, dying, you didn't go to the doctor. Yeah. Like It wasn't like you got a checkup just to make sure things were good. Exactly. Like nobody had any money to do so. So like. Right. And this I'm sure you guys can imagine, was absolutely devastating news for Clyde to receive, especially because, you know, he had already taken the liberty of tattooing the letters USN on his left arm. Something's telling me he's a little bit impulsive. Oh, I wonder what that, <laughs> I wonder what that could be. I wonder where this is going to go. <laughs> so uh, since the Navy career wound up being a bust, Clyde almost immediately turned to a life of crime. When he was 17, he was arrested for the first time. He had rented a car to go visit a high school girlfriend and just never took the car back. I know we all like think it when we're in a rental car, but you're not supposed to do it. Yeah. You gotta take it back. And eventually the police located him. What did he do? He ran. <laughs> the rental car company did wound up 
dropping all the charges, so nothing really came of it. But this was just the first of many vehicles Clyde stole and would go on to steal in his short lifespan. It seemed to be his thing, if you will. Uh, the <laughs> second, putting it so lightly. <laughs> right. The second time he was arrested took place not too long after the rental car situation. He and his brother Buck were found to be in possession of a truck full of stolen turkeys. Laugh all you will, but that's like a hundred dinners and a vehicle. Exactly. So who's laughing now? <laughs> Now, from the year 1927 until 1929, Clyde had held down some legitimate jobs here, there, everywhere. Um, he also found time to crack safes, rob stores, and steal cars in whatever free time he did have. Which, it sounds like it, there was a lot of that. Sounds to me like the jobs were fewer and farther between than the crimes. <laughs> yes. Long story short. <laughs> Now, it wasn't until January of 1930 that Bonnie Parker and Clyde Barrow met for the first time. There's varying accounts of how these two got together, how they met. One version said that they met at a party and they actually just kind of came upon each other. And once they started talking, they found each other to be a kindred spirit. You know, they both grew up in poor families. They had higher aspirations for their lives. I like that version. It's kind of poetic. I do too, but I like kind of like fate brought them together. I agree. I also kind of like this version too, though, because it's it's also kind of a twist of fate, if you right. will. And this is the more credible version of events. They say that they met through a mutual friend. So Bonnie wasn't working at the time, and she was staying with a friend of hers, Clarence Clay. So Clarence had broken her arm and needed assistance, which is why Bonnie offered to help. And one day, Clyde had decided to stop by and saw Bonnie in the kitchen and boom, fucking game over. That's they literally all it took. She was making hot cocoa for yeah. Clarence, I believe. I mm -hmm. was like, oh, it's so, so sweet also, and innocent. If we, just for a brief moment in time, forget about all the violence that they... In, Everything else ensue, coming down the pipeline, yeah. This one moment in time is is cute. It is. I just, every time I have that thought during this case, I'm like, but Brie, they're violent murderers. I know. <laughs> so how these two met really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. The result is the same across every story. The two were just absolutely smitten with one another pretty much immediately, like right out the gate. Like <laughs> this is my soulmate. We are now one, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Didn't, wasn't enough for her to take that wedding ring off though. Mm, well, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> Her author, Jeff Gwynn, quote, they were both people who wanted the other's approval. They wanted glamour. They wanted excitement. They found in each other the things they were looking for, end quote. They were all but attached at the hips after that fateful day. But unfortunately for them, approximately four months later, Clyde was arrested and sent to Eastham Prison Farm. Oof. If you want to guess what that charge is, you'd probably be right because it's <laughs> auto theft. So Gold Star, what? have another sip of your drink. We congratulate you Cheers. for playing. <laughs> now, after Clyde's incarceration, Bonnie's mother begged and pleaded with her daughter, please forget this man move on. Stop what you're doing. Please just choose someone else. And Bonnie was like, no, thank you. We are Flat in out, love like, nope. until the end. Almost a direct quote. While in jail, Clyde was assaulted multiple times. Taylor's all this time is really unfortunate, but it does happen quite Especially, often. I guess this prison was rather notorious for its awfulness. Especially when you consider this whole setup, it was kind of weird. The assault, most of the assaults were likely done by Ed Crowder, 
a convict who was a building tender. And this meant that he tended to the prison building and was often given great latitude when it came to quote unquote keeping the peace. Sounds like to me that there was either not enough guards or the guards didn't want to. They didn't want to do the dirty work, I guess, of like enforcing. Yeah, that's kind of how it felt like to me. It almost felt like they were like, here, Ed, you can be the the enforcer, be the muscle. You're in charge now. That's, I mean, and this is totally just, you know, as an, an assumption that we're making, but either way, Clyde 100% was not taking any of this lying down and he retaliated by attacking his tormentor with a pipe. Ed was cracked in the skull with said pipe and ultimately lost his life because of it. Now, this incident goes down in history as Clyde's first murder, but he never had to answer to any charges. And that's because another inmate one that was already serving a life sentence took responsibility for the murder. There's always like a code of conduct, if you will, yeah. like in any given profession, but prisons have a very strange hierarchy. Well, and you know, we say this all the time in our episodes. What would have happened if Clyde like had stayed in prison would have gotten in trouble for that? Right. And had to be held accountable. It, it's not, just none it's, of the we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Clyde right. Barrow because he wouldn't have done anything he outside just been of in jail. That. Right. It's so crazy. And you always see that shit in movies, too. Like somebody with a life sentence is like, nah, kid, don't worry, I got it. Well, again, so <laughs> was it like an old grizzled guy serving a life sentence like in Shawshank who just right. is like, well, I'll take the burden because you're a young kid. You don't need to be here that's, for the rest of your that's life. That's exactly what I pictured in my, in my head. Brain. That's how I'm watching it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I do. The I, old man with the crow they, saves yep. Clyde. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just that's exactly where my brain went. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same page. Yep. <laughs> So at some point in this delightful stay at uh, East Thumb Prison, Bonnie came for a visit and handed over a weapon that she somehow snuck into actual prison. (laughs) Clyde was able to use that weapon to break out of said prison. This did not last long, however, as he was recaptured and sent back to lockup. At one point in January of 1932, Clyde actually cut off two of his own toes, allegedly with an axe. Ow. Yeah, right. So some claim that this was actually done by another inmate. So who honestly knows? Um, you had to work on this prison mm-hmm. out in the fields. So I think he was hoping to like get out of that. Yeah. The injury Clyde or whoever inflicted upon himself <laughs> meant three different things. One, he would be left with a noticeable limp for the rest of his life. Two, he would be excused from that hard labor out on the farm. And three, he would be unable to drive a car with shoes on for the rest of his life. Which I mean, so fucking. I literally, so I don't funny. know why, but I was like typing it. I was mildly delirious because we we've been doing a lot of work behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. But I literally was like, <laughs> as I was like typing it out, I was cracking myself up. I was like, wouldn't that be a scene to just see a man with like missing toes and no shoes <laughs> driving a vehicle? Because he liked to steal cars. in stores and shit. Yeah. So like what? You're limping away. Do you wear your shoes? Do you take them off before you drive? Just somebody drive <laughs> what the getaway car? What if you have car? to be a quick getaway? That's what I'm saying. Right. We have questions. I have so <laughs> many questions. So if this was something that he had done to himself, it was pointless. Because six days after this impromptu toe amputation, Clyde was released from prison. I feel like that was a small bit of karma that was like, hmm, Okay. Well, now you're going to limp and you can't drive a car with shoes on. Because <laughs> apparently like this whole shtick. I feel like it, it was like his mother had been like, 
advocating like mm, it wasn't yeah. really that bad he just stole a car like times are so hard pull out the big puppy dog weepy eyes yeah and people she, are like oh okay he got released because she was successful in her petition yeah. if i remember correctly which i mean you know what again if we didn't know what we know up until that point i think that's an incredibly fair thing to say no for Especially sure if you're his mom you know she's like it's not like he did anything bad he just borrowed a car and didn't bring it back <laughs> too bad it doesn't stay like that mrs barrow i know <laughs> oh if only clyde did end up getting paroled from eastham on february 2nd 1932 he came out of prison a hardened and bitter man which again tale as old as time i can't say i blame him like i said eastham sounds like Awful. It does. Awful. It really, really does. Fellow inmate Ralph Fultz said that he watched Clyde, quote unquote, change from a schoolboy to a rattlesnake, which is quite a description, I think. Honestly, rattlesnakes are transformation too. Yeah. Clyde was absolutely furious with the prison system as well as the government. You know, every everybody felt personally attacked by the Great Depression, which well, is fair and valid. Like, maybe if things had been handled better, I wouldn't be in this predicament where stealing cars is the only way that I can, like, live. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Granted, the anger might seem slightly misplaced, but... We are not condoning his his Do not do that. (laughs) ...for revenge here. But I'm saying, I think I can see it. I I can as well. It would make me angry, too. Oh, for sure, for sure. However, I don't think i would take it to this level because he would not made it his personal goal to get back at everyone within those two systems for what he perceived as personal slights against him you know like i said the great depression likely his whole toe situation as well as the assault i I really (laughs) i'm not trying to be funny why the fuck would you cut off your own toes for one but for two like it's a situation (laughs) Situation, situation you have created with your own acts i mean like if who, I... who lets prison people have axes it was working they were working in the fields they were you know i find it interesting that prisons like that will house like some of the most violent offenders be like here's a weapon like, here's a <laughs> but we're go, all gonna go over there where i can't see you i feel like that's when chain gangs were a thing so everybody's hooked at the ankles mm, and he's just over here like chopping his toes I just, it's not funny, I just, but like, <laughs> but it, but it is. It's comical. Like, here's a bunch of murderers. Let's hook them all together and then give them all weapons. Yeah, it's almost cartoonish it's, if it, it wasn't so like violent. What the Roman, like the gladiators, like everybody just take each other out. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, I'm surprised it didn't happen more than it than did. We're seeing, you know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, and who knows? Because I'm not laughing. It's not funny, but also like, <laughs> bro, I mean, it, we can laugh at the the bad guys and True. Clyde. As much as I can empathize for the situation that they were born into, he's a really bad guy. Right. (laughs) Like, really, really bad. You're right, girl. You're right. Now, after his release, Clyde began robbing grocery stores and gas stations at an alarming rate. It was like he was trying to make up for lost time or something. Mm -hmm. And he also began putting a little gang together. This group became known as the Barrow Gang and were well-known outlaws, robbers, murderers, and criminals. They traveled throughout the central U.S. and quickly became household names thanks to the American press and its readership during what was known as the quote-unquote public enemy era. I mean, it's very fascinating, but these were some bad motherfucking people. Okay, so this is one of the (laughs) things that we want to deep dive this year. I mentioned it 
before i am like so obsessed with mob culture and just everything about it it's so fascinating to me because it's another instance where there's this whole other hierarchy and they live a whole life they have their own codes like it's it's based off of things that you and i would never even like dream of, of understanding so you guys can definitely expect like a deep dive into mob life and not, like american not deep enough to get us killed or no, anything no, no. but like <laughs> no, no, no. no 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 mildly it's deep. not scientology i don't think we have anything to worry right? about yet <laughs> so that expression actually dates back to the romans but the modern use of the term was first popularized in 1930 the chairman of the chicago crime commission at the time used the term to publicly denounce al capone and other organized crime associates None of the people named in Frank Lesh's earlier mentioned announcement were considered to be fugitives. They weren't even actively wanted by law enforcement at that specific moment in time. This published list was basically just meant to shame those named and to encourage authorities to prosecute or maybe the public to turn them in for something they may have done. Mm -hmm. Later, the phrase public enemies was hijacked by J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI, who used it frequently when describing fugitives throughout the remainder of the decade. However, this time around, it was being used to describe actively wanted criminals that were either evading arrest or had already been charged. Of course, Bonnie and Clyde appeared on the FBI's list of public enemies. So did other big mob names like John Dillinger, Machine Gun Kelly, and Ma Barker. In case you were curious, all of those people were deceased not that long after this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm I feel like I read something at some point that they were all actually really thrilled about how enamored the American public was with Bonnie and Clyde because it took pressure off of them because law enforcement was so focused on stopping this that they kind of were like, well, you know what? Like, we got bigger fish to fry right now. Well, like, everybody's got a limp. We're missing toes. We're driving barefoot. (laughs) We're stealing cars. Like, they're pretty recognizable. And and still... They're Two just years of really awful things. I I just I guess I didn't like we said I thought we knew, mm. but it turns out we don't know shit. Turns out <laughs> I don't know nothing. Nothing about it. Now, if you weren't previously familiar with the story of Bonnie and Clyde, you might not have known that they committed their most notorious criminal acts with other people. Before we wrap things up for today, we do want to just briefly introduce you to the initial members of the gang. So first up, we've got Buck. Obviously, you know, they already started committing crimes together as young boys. They were a gang before the gang was a gang. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Buck was actually born as Marvin. LOL that. I would also go by Buck. Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's way more badass than Marvin. Buck Barrow. Ready to fuck shit up, (laughs) right? He does. Let me tell you. For real. Um, He was actually older than Clyde by six years, which put him at 29 in 1932. Which when you think about it. That made Clyde only 23. That like, that's so crazy so to me. so young. Oh, my God. To be doing this kind of shit. Like, <laughs> I can barely... guns and robbing people and shit. It was a miracle I was able to get to work most days. Honestly. We. <laughs> so, Buck, uh, Buck had dropped out of school somewhere around age eight or nine and started living a life of crime at an incredibly young age. He was actually fighting roosters and pit bulls to start. And I feel like that is also a really common theme for this time period that it was all hands on deck education yeah. was not important if you were even had find, access, find if you a, even had access to education right. you couldn't have it anymore find a hustle make it legal or illegal but yeah. just make some money so we can eat exactly you know? sad as it is the great depression and the time period i think just is a huge player in this case and then in the story yeah because it's just 
lends to so much of the why behind everything. By the time Buck began running with his younger brother, he was actually on wife number three, and he had already had multiple children. So just like a little fun fact, I guess. Fun, fun, (laughs) quote unquote. (laughs) So Buck's third and final wife was actively involved with the Barrow Gang. Her name was Blanche. She didn't enjoy the life that these two led, but she went along with things because she wanted to be with her husband. He was gone a lot. All that robbing and stealing, you know, takes time. And I feel like if the opportunity presented itself, like if, you know, to get out, if your husband was like, I'm going to go do this with my brother and we're going to be on the run, essentially, are you coming or not? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to go. Uh, the next member we're going to mention is named W.D. Jones, a.k.a. William Daniel, a.k.a. Bud, a.k.a. Deacon. Because why did he... he we do de- love our nicknames. He was literally like a teenager, like a literal child. Like a when baby. he started doing this. And why did he have 17 names? Anyways, he ran with the gang for a short amount of time, beginning in the December of 1932. W.D. started out by stealing license plates for Clyde and his friends to use on all their stolen cars. And I guess one day Clyde was just like, hey, man, maybe you should just steal this one and become one of us. Like, and he was like, hell yeah, it's great. He Clyde can't drive. So, I mean, you he know. can just not well <laughs> He needs or quickly needs away from anything. Right. <laughs> Next up is Raymond Hamilton. He grew up in the same neighborhood as Clyde, so of course he joined the gang. Raymond also started young, first by skipping school, like a lot. Mm -hmm. Then he used to fence stolen bicycles through to a future sheriff on top of committing petty thefts quite often. As we know, or we will find out next week, he soon moved on to bigger and worse things. Mm -hmm. Joe Palmer is also somebody who is going to be a player at some point. He was a Texas native who found himself to be an associate of Bonnie, Clyde, and their gang. He and Henry Methvin are kind of like honorable mentions, for lack of a better term. They don't really come into play until the third week, kind of. (laughs) But their names will be important. They do play a big part in the story. We're essentially just kind of giving you a rundown of like names that that we'll be talking about over the next two weeks after this. The last gang member we want to mention today is Ralph Foltz. He was arrested for the first time at the ripe old age of 14 after police found him carrying a suitcase full of stolen goods. A week later, Foltz managed to escape the town jail after he made a key from an old tobacco can. That right there is some MacGyver shit. Honestly. And I'm here for it. Yep. (laughs) The sheriff at the time that he escaped was actually attending the county fair. So Foltz decided to just start a mass jailbreak. He was, however, soon captured and reincarcerated at a different facility, but he escaped from there too. Give people enough time. So many prison <laughs> prison breaks. <laughs> In 1929, Fultz was arrested and convicted of burglary after he sold stolen cigarettes to a local grocer. He was given a two-year sentence to be served at Huntsville Prison. He was eventually transferred to Eastham Prison Farm, from which he had escaped. Again, he was recaptured and taken back to jail. When Fultz was 19, he met Clyde in the back of what was called a one-way wagon. I love that that's what they called it. It just made me laugh because I was like, I mean, I get it. I mean, it's true. (laughs) One one way in, no way out. Correct. So they were being transported to Eastham, which was not great for Fultz. Since he had previously escaped, the guards retaliated against him and hard. The inmates were warned. Anybody that associated with Fultz would receive the same treatment. Clyde did not care. He refused to stop openly associating with him. 
The two would often spend their time planning their revenge on the institution that held them. And boy, did they follow through on a lot of what they were planning. Woof. But that, my friends, will be a story for next week. This episode was just all about setting the scene, getting to know some of our main players in our story. The next episode, we're going to go over the timeline of events that transpired during those two years the gang were active. So that's when we'll dig deep into the crimes themselves and what they were doing. So much crimes. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So many crimes. So thank you guys for coming to hang out. We're super grateful every time you come and spend some time with us. We love it. We're so happy to be back. So happy to be back. This feels so good. (laughs) Be sure you're following the podcast on social media so we can all hang out. On Facebook and Instagram, we're at Crime and Spirits Pod. That is the word and. On TikTok, we are at Crime and Spirits Podcast. This is where you'll find ingredients, recipes, fun videos showing you how to make each drink, random nonsense that we just find funny and we think you will too. We are a couple of weirdos at the end of the day. We were just talking about that. Let your your freak flag (laughs) shine, guys. So if you'd like to follow us personally, you can find us each on Instagram. I am at Suze, not Susan. And I am at Brie underscore not the cheese. Definitely, if you guys want to follow us personally, like we encourage this. Please do. Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoy getting to see the crossover. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. And we're going to be doing some other things that are not podcast related. So it's definitely a good time to make sure you're following us on all of the things. Uh, Additionally... We are going to possibly, hint, hint, be doing maybe some giveaways in exchange for reviews. So maybe it would be a good idea if you guys started leaving us some reviews on whatever platform you're able to. But if you guys start getting reviews in, it'll help us get just out there a little bit more. It makes our whole fucking day. That too. And we're going to be working on some like fun t-shirts or stickers or things. We haven't decided quite yet what they're going to be, but we're definitely going to be giving you some shit. We got it in the works, guys. Yeah. Also, if you want to recommend a case or a cocktail or literally anything for us to check out, email us at crimeandspiritspodcast at gmail.com. That being said, you may also message us on any Instagram, Facebook. Yeah, We're not it picky. All works. Yeah. We just love to hear from you. If it's constructive and it sounds interesting, we are all in on it. Oh, so. If there's enough for us to do, I mean, honestly, there doesn't even have to be enough for us to do a whole episode because we can always save it and do like an anthology. So please do not hesitate to reach out to us with anything you guys want us Any to cover. Any idea. Just holler at your girls. Yeah. And finally, if you are interested in becoming a monthly supporter of our podcast, there is a link for that in the show notes. Feel free to smash that link. All right, guys. We ready for the first corny joke oh, of the year? Yeah. I think I picked out a good one because Mark laughed out loud when I told it to him. And I know that, that man is a tough nut to crack. <laughs> so I know it's a good one. Okay. There are two muffins baking in the oven one muffin says to the other phew is it getting hot in here or is it just me the other muffin says oh my god a talking muffin <laughs> oh no oh, <laughs> i love it boom boom, boom. But got it. i have to get like i have to see if there's like a sound or something that i can do there is that. i just think of that little mm-hmm. drawing like, i wonder if i can find it on our stuff anyways first episode of the year that's the a bag. wrap feeling good so happy to be back with you guys If you are sipping along with us, like we mentioned, please do so responsibly. The last thing we want is for anybody to go out and hurt themselves or others. I know we like to talk about crime, but we don't want to talk about your crime. So we do not stay stay safe home, especially now if you're in any kind of snowy region. I feel like that's 90% of the country right now. Yeah, Shit's getting wild out there. So please, please be careful. Order some food in, drink some water, 
just hang out, guys. Go listen to some other podcasts from the Podmoth Network or go catch up on episodes you haven't listened yet. Yeah. We're so fucking happy to be back. We've missed you. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time. Bye. Bye.